Welcome to the PetroNerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of PetroNerds, and Ethan Bellamy. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown, brought to you by Digital Wildcatters. Welcome to PetroNerds Podcast, episode 15. It's Tuesday, May 11th, 2021. I am your host, Ethan Bellamy, along with the main CEO and host of the podcast, Trisha Curtis. Hello again, Trisha. Hello. I am your, I am the host and, and the CEO of PetroNerds. And what are we talking about today? Ethan? We have an action-packed agenda. On the on tap today is the, the grand saga of the colonial pipeline. We're going to talk about oil prices in the market and uh, inflation and the dollar. So let's dive in with the Colonial Pipeline, 5,500 mile line that goes from Houston to New Jersey, two and a half million barrels a day of uh, refined products and uh, dark side attacked. How would you like to be the people that are in the gun sites of the National Security Agency, the US Cyber Command, Joint Special Operations, and a whole host of intelligence agencies all coming at you to make sure that you don't attack any more infrastructure. Yeah, I think this is a really serious, I mean, obviously this is a really serious thing. You started probably following over the weekend as I did. I had reporters calling me. In the beginning, nobody knew exactly what was going on. I think the most interesting thing about this, well, there's many, many interesting things, but so this pipeline goes from Houston to all the way up to um I think it's Linden, New Jersey. So there's all these, you know, it goes up and then it has all these interconnections. And I believe they, it's 5,500 miles of liquid petroleum pipelines. It's basically two main lines. And then it's 65 sub lines extending from the main lines. So it's a, a pretty extensive network. And it was actually commissioned. So this has been around since the 1960s. I believe this was commissioned or started the thought process was at least started under Roosevelt um, on the back of World War II. So it is a private pipeline, um, but it is regulated. Um, so it's interesting in that this is a, in terms of a major conduit, this is like, this is where stuff flows, but this is largely product that we're talking about. So product flowing from, refined product flowing from Houston and up to, up through the sort of eastern. And for, for the generalists, what is refined product? That's jet fuel. Jet fuel, um, gasoline, and diesel, pr predominantly. I mean, I'm sure there's some other products in there, but those are the pr predominant yes. things. And I think the biggest fear with all this, you know, over the weekend and then through this week has been obviously the run on gasoline. And, you know, w would you, uh, we have a lot of jet fuel, so I don't think that was an immediate concern, but particularly for diesel and for, um, and for gasoline, that would be an issue, especially since we've been drawing down inventories. There may be an issue of having jet fuel in the right place though. Absolutely. So we don't know that for sure. Absolutely. So sometimes I think, and it is important for people to realize is that the refining business is complex. The midstream business is not, especially from a product standpoint and product lines, it is complex as well, just because you have, enough product in some places in the US as a whole doesn't mean you have it in the right places and then switching that around. So already we've seen shippers try to navigate this. We That's probably a couple of weeks out. It's not that different from the Suez when the Suez was blocked and that it takes time for actually things to move around. Um, although just we'll, we'll come back to this, but to be fair, if this pipeline gets reopened in the next few days, I do not think the impact is gonna be quite as substantial. I mean, I, I think we've definitely seen runs at gasoline stations where people are sort of hoarding gasoline, but I do think this will alleviate pretty quickly what, if this is up and running in the next few days. Yeah, um, and I, and I, I, think, I think if you look at the consumer behavior, 
exactly what is happening is what shouldn't be happening because you you actually probably are actually short supply. It's just that the rush to the pumps has created a run on the bank type scenario and created more outages than there otherwise would be. Yes, cor- absolutely, absolutely correct. And I think um, so. The the it also it also does bring heating heating oil. So I know we have heating oil. Obviously, we have a lot of terminals on the East Coast and everything. But there would be some concerns potentially if you know you we we're in May now. So hopefully it's a little bit warmer. But if this had happened in the winter, it could be worse. It is snowing today in Denver as we record this. You know, though. we've had some pretty crappy weather in Denver <laughs> we for sure. Um, so I will point out, and this is not to make a pun, but on the Colonial website, which if you've been there, um, many of the pages the web pages are actually down. But the one page, the main page about the pipeline is not down. So if you want to understand this pipeline and just see the maps and stuff, I encourage you to go to Colonial and look at it. And it says, as a mission statement, we are the energy that moves America. And truthfully, the reason they are, and it's one of the largest diameter pipelines, and believe it is the one of the largest in the world. So if you were to attack a infrastructure, global piece of infrastructure that's literally to one of the most dependent oil countries in the world, and one of the largest markets in the world um, and a main piece of uh, infrastructure. This is actually it. There is no other main pipeline actually probably around the entire globe um, that would have as quick of a, or a large of potential of an impact as this. Yeah, it, it supplies about 45 percent, I think, is the set I saw of the, the product on the East Coast um, runs through 13 states. And uh, the next closest uh, competitor, which is running full, is the plantation pipeline system run by Kinder Morgan, which is uh, roughly 750,000 barrels a day. And that's already full. So your options for supplanting that that lost supply are are marine cargoes, uh, potentially um, some trucked transportation. And the EPA has already made some waivers about about fuel supply characteristics. And then you can steer some marine cargo. Um, but it really hard to replace the uh, uh, jugular, if you will, of supply for a line this size. Yeah, I think, and that's where we'll probably see when it when it comes back, we'll see how much of it. You, you're not going to know, truthfully, the impetus of this this comes back and we see this for a few days because this has only been out since the weekend. But so they say on their website, this is a hun- it's 185,000 miles um, of pipeline infrastructure carrying liquid petroleum products predominantly. Um, it's about uh, so Colonial makes about three percent of this pipe. And then due to the large diameter. So they say that due to the large diameter, they actually transport between 15 to 20 percent of U.S. pipeline shipments. So that's a lot. I mean, that's a you're, you're talking about nearly a quarter, 15 to 20 percent of, of U.S. pipeline shipments. Um, and on the East coast it's actually closer to 40 percent so this gets to your number of, of that maximum um, and it's actually the largest volume of refined quote largest volume of refined liquid petroleum products pipeline operating in the world so that's when i say i mean that that is a major major piece of infrastructure in terms of and it is because it is a big pipeline and, and it, it can transport all this and it goes to all these all these refineries um and so the I guess I, will, I we should probably pivot because uh, you actually wrote an article on this this week. Uh, we did. And we took sort of a, a meta view um, at BP Capital. We wrote a blog, which I'll refer you to a pretty short, basically just talking about the duration of fuels. So if you think about uh, a diesel fuel, which was the backup supply for anybody who had a generator, diesel or gasoline, you know, you can store that if you if you use a fuel, fuel stabilizer, you can store it for a whole season or a whole year or potentially even longer. That is in contrast to energy, which is really tough to store. 
and very expensive to store. Here's an interesting stat, which uh, I'm going to reference the JP Morgan report, which we'll probably pop talk about in the next deck, the next podcast. But the energy equivalent of a barrel of oil to store that same energy equivalent in batteries costs half a million dollars. And for oil, that's 15 to 18 dollars to uh, per cost per barrel for a storage facility. So as we talk about electrifying, there's some some resiliency and some um, some duration issues that really need to be taken into consideration. Uh, you know, we touched on this when we talked about uh, the winter storm Uri, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, look. <laughs> you have to balance the load. It's really tough to store power. And, uh, you know, look, there, it, I know Chuck had uh, his dad's place with mm-hmm. the Tesla batteries and that was good. But typically your battery storage, I mean, I looked at uh, an EIA report and uh, even the utility scale batteries were something like 14 hours. We're not talking about the ability to cover a week or two weeks or three weeks of supply. Yeah, actually. And if I, I he, we drove by Chuck's parents' house in my tour of my five minute tour of Richmond. Um, and that was, I, I saw that, that there's a bunch of solar panels. So it's not just the battery itself. It was also North, I believe of, and he said this in, in one of his clubhouse things that the cost of that is North of a hundred grand. So just to have that backup with that battery, cause I, th- I believe it's pretty big and they had power, but it's, they have a bunch of solar panels in their yard and then they have this battery. Obviously that's out of reach for anybody that's uh, not related to Chuck Yates. No, I mean, I think that's uh, he, he, he criticized his dad for like, what's the payback on right. that? And obviously it takes a long time to pay it off, but something anyways, you, you can get into it with him. And, and but I do think that so this does highlight to the, what your article did and I th- think is point out and I think the Energy Policy Research Foundation also had sent out an email today um, and not j- literally just explaining sort of the facts of this pipeline and, and where it's at but then noted obviously that this is going to be a, a big issue. I think that um, I do think it's interesting that the administration has obviously the FBI was involved in the very beginning. Department of Energy has been involved and and they're taking this very, very seriously. We haven't heard the administration. Um, and I say this because uh, the we, the secretary of transportation, what's his name? Booten. I'm getting it wrong. Booten gig. Buttigieg. 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 Anyway, I, I can't, I can't pronounce his name. The secretary of transportation, he took the liberty of talking a lot about the job market today on CNBC, but when it, he didn't criticize the, uh, we, we actually didn't hear him criticize energy infrastructure or basically criticize um, our reliance on fossil fuels. And I, I think the, Something to be taken from that is that the reality is that no matter what we have for a fuel, um, whether it's fossil fuels or whether it's um, we completely greenify and electrify the grid, it's going to be vulnerable to this type of stuff. And in particular, I mean, as technology gets I mean, more significant, like it will be actually worse. Probably well, the outages I, would technically from a grid standpoint, <clears throat> if you're if we're going to go all EVs and then we're going to fully rely on the grid, your vulnerabilities actually. And this is this is like playing a game of risk or just playing a game of chess with your buddies and um, and, and thinking about it like the risk is going to get go up, not go down from this type of vulnerability perspective. Right. And, and the other aspect of this, which is really interesting, is, of course, the administration's anti-pipeline stance where they shut down Keystone XL. Um, Whitmer in Michigan is pushing to close line five. Uh, that that brings the U.S. and Canada and the state of Michigan and energy consumers in the state all into turmoil. And there's some questions about how that's going to play out. Of course, um, we're seeing evidence of when pipelines don't work, take them for granted. But 
certainly I would imagine that everyone in North Carolina or Atlanta who's not able to fund gasoline right now is anxious to get the pipelines working again. So well, I mean, those aren't necessarily the same products yep. we're talking about, but you wouldn't want to highlight necessarily for the press that your anti-pipeline stance. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And I, this could this could be showing a this this is your olive branch, right? This could be the bipartisan moment of of you know we understand the importance of infrastructure and and certainly I think the oil and gas industry is is not going to throw you know they're not going to. Well, if, if child care is infrastructure, I'm going to just lay it out there that the colonial pipeline um, should yeah, be infrastructure. This is definitely infrastructure, folks. So and, and all, all many, many things are infrastructure apparently these days. But this is certainly one of them. So two and a half million barrels per day. It just a when we think about product refined products, two and a half million barrels per day. It's not that you don't have refineries on the East Coast. So we do have refineries on the East Coast. But it is just the the sheer volume of, of what we do with it and how we use it and consume it is that it, that's a lot of that's a lot of product. I mean, that's yeah, yes. I mean, we're talking about a 20 million barrel day product market of demand, and that's two and a half million barrels a day of this product. So um, that's your context for this. And, a, and this does go back to the original. Uh, and I know I'm going to I'm giving myself flack in advance for this, but the original pitch on MOPs, which is. The infrastructure of infrastructure. You are the midstream MLP guy. The, well, we try to not to say MLP anymore because that's a dirty word. But, you know, you don't have hospitals running. And, you know, this this pipeline supplies, you know, Atlanta, one of the world, one of the world's biggest airports, Charlotte, Reagan, Dulles. So you can't run that infrastructure without the jet fuel supply getting there. Yep. And so, you know, this is a national security risk. And like I started off this segment with, boy, are you, do you want to be these dark side hackers going against the entire weight of the NSA and U.S. Cyber Command? Boy, yeah. they, they're in real trouble. That so it's not the question of um, so who is who is dark side and and where they're located. And obviously, the there's been some back and forth. If you watch the market on whether or not on Biden accusing Russia, etc. Obviously, they're they're probably in Russia. It's probably Russia. They assume it's Eastern Europe. So they. I, I kind of question whether or not they are a super sophisticated group or an un, or younger. Obviously, they're they they are capable of doing this stuff, right? So that that's not a question that they they aren't don't have the capacity to to pull something like this off because they actually did. The question is whether or not they understood the gravity of it. So when they've come out and and if they're young guys, um, maybe they didn't understand the gravity and they did just want the money, but now they've made it clear they've come out publicly and said that they they're not political. Well. It doesn't matter if you're political. You you chose to attack one of the main you know corridor main pipelines um, in the U.S. So it's become a major. It's you, you've become a. Um, I mean, they are personally are at risk now because they've attacked this. So either they are sophisticated and they're lying um, in terms of they knew what they were doing, or they just know that they're going to be in trouble because um, they definitely are. Or literally, they just said, they, "Hey, this is a big deal. This is a big pipeline. We'll go after this. They'll pay us the money. It's private." There's this. I think there's this private element too that. Um, you you're not going after a public. So it could be a little bit different, but clearly those facts are not out yet. And I think what exactly was attacked, why? So I, I'm pretty sure that from everything I've heard and understood is that information was taken, right? So they attacked like the main, essentially like the main office structure, information was stolen. And it's not so much that they couldn't operate the pipeline that didn't, the hackers did not shut down the operations of a pipeline, but they shut it down preemptively, I believe, to make sure this didn't go any further. And then they essentially that that information and that's what where that information is going, the information of those people, um, that's what they wanted the ransom war for, or that's what they wanted the ransom for, right? Is so that they wouldn't uh, leak all that information and do further damage. Um, yeah, and lest we forget, we didn't mention the 
the ownership group, but the major owners are the Koch brothers. And even though and Shell, and there's a couple yeah, of the, the top owners are the Koch brothers. Yeah. And if anybody has, um, shall we say, access to um, extra pull within the deep state, you can bet it's the Koch brothers, a couple billionaires that I don't want to be on their bad list. <laughs> So you, this isn't going to go away. They're not going to forget about this. No. And, and, you know, this could be a good I mean, I don't think that this is ever a good thing. But if this if this results in our infrastructure being more resilient or that our, you know, private companies, public companies, um, infrastructure from pipelines to grids to renewables and everything becomes more resilient as a as a part of this. I think that's I think that's very positive. All right. Okay. Let's transition now to oil prices in the oil market. Yes, that's perfect transition. Um, so. You know, oil prices have kind of slid, uh, at least last night. So if you're watching it, we're back at we're 65 WTI, Brent's 68 and change. Oil prices are looking really good. We didn't see on gasoline prices. We've certainly seen prices move up a little, but we haven't seen a dramatic sh shoot up in gasoline prices because of Colonial. And if you're seeing gouging in any of these gasoline stations, that's not I mean, that's it's illegal. Yeah, Report it's, it. It's yeah, illegal. exactly. So it, it, that technically shouldn't be happening. not saying it, it, it can't or, or wouldn't. But anyway, so oil prices are up um, $65. Things are looking good. We had a slug of earnings calls, which we'll probably also be talking about in the next um, in the next podcast. But had a slug of earnings calls and um, lots of that weight. The talk, obviously, on on the stability of oil prices and what's that done or what's been done with that. But. Well, prices look good right now. I mean, they're, I wouldn't say like too good, but 65 and change and 68 and change. Um, the average of Colonial did help support that. Uh, last night we saw um, prices come down a little bit. And I think the, the, the role of the dollar, I think inflation, oil prices being a major component um, to a, one of the major components to this inflation trade. And really just the massive amount of inflation in the U.S., the fact that the Fed has not, put out any language that they're going to curb anything. Um, all this is and the weakness of the dollar is impacting oil prices. Definitely. And we've seen a huge recovery in demand versus last year. We're still lacking on jet fuel, but we just got uh, both EIA and OPEC assessments of the market. The EIA for 2021 is at 97.7 million barrels a day. OPEC has 96.5 million barrels a day. So we're, you know, basically more than a quarter of the way into the year, a quarter and a half into the year. That's the, what they're saying for demand. Yeah. And they're 1.2 million barrels a day apart. So the crystal balls of these agencies aren't exactly in alignment. We know there's going to be a recovery. What's interesting is that EIA has us going back to 101.4 million barrels a day in 22. Yep. Which is a very compelling number. And I think that is that plus the, um, I think we can still say without, really almost without exception, the only one would be maybe Double Point, which got taken out by Pioneer, that, uh, that companies are really restrained in their CapEx. And at least domestically, we're not seeing the capex necessary to to put supply really at, at risk of of hurting oil prices. Globally, it's a little tougher to see, but you know we we are at least at a you know Goldilocks plus type environment, and I think we're not out of the woods in terms of like that eighty dollar forecast people are looking for, with the exception, of course of the, the thing that people who are focused just on the U.S. 
seem to miss, which is that OPEC has a bunch of spare capacity they could drop on the market at any time. Yeah. So I, I think um, I disagree a little bit. Um, well, that's fine. Because we, I mean, actually, I probably disagree quite a bit. We have a major bifurcation taking place in the U.S. between the um, large independents, your public companies, your majors, anybody who's public, and then your private companies and your P-back companies. And there's this quarter running theory that, you know, these, the private and P guys are sort of, you know, ramping up because they're waiting to get bought out. Uh, well, newsflash folks, it's $65 WTI. So that's not the only reason why they're ramping up. It's, I mean, they're basically healthy between 50 and $65 oil. And there's not much in this market signaling that we're not, we're not going to we're probably not going to be going below $50 oil. The the interesting thing is like is where sort of that that range of prices. I think I think $65 oil is being it's being supported um t- thus far in the market by the US by other countries and we're seeing obviously softness in India with the continued um concerns on obviously that's we're not hearing about it nearly as much in the news cuz colonial has sort of taken that as well as inflation concerns. But we are relatively lumpy with COVID. The ranges I'm hearing are everything from 95 million barrels a day of current demand to 98 million barrels a day to current demand to some saying we're already back to 100 million barrels a day of demand. So the guidance and ranges are where we're at are kind of all over the map. The Dallas Fed has, put, you know, they cite the actual EIA and they basically show year end. EIA is basically projecting year end that we're completely in line. So supply and demand are essentially going to be in line at about 100 million barrels per day. Um, and they're assuming, obviously, that the more production gets brought back online from from OPEC. Now, we have not we haven't heard much from OPEC. They're going to meet again, obviously, within in, in a couple of weeks. So we're waiting. I mean, we're only a few days out from um, IA's market monthly market report, which we'll tune you guys into when we get it. Um, and a few days out also from OPEC's report as well. So they'll they'll give us some additional color on that. So a bit of a wait and see. I don't think OPEC's probably going to change much. It's going to be we're adding these barrels back into the market. Obviously, if we see that they've added them, um, if we see that they've added them over in, in the course of April and the market has absorbed it and it seems like it has, you know, the market's sort of running steady and we see very good demand growth, obviously, in the U.S., but this kind of gets back to this whole, um, you know, robust economy and things running a little hot. And I think um, things are running hot. And we do have a robust economy. The global growth story for oil is not completely. I mean, we're not seeing the demand recovery in Europe, obviously, that we're seeing here. Um, we didn't in the last crisis either. Um, and we're certainly not seeing in other pockets of the world. We're definitely seeing in China. But I, you know, these projections for oil prices going sky high possible given the craziness we have with inflation. But I just want to point out that the pound is a buck 40 to the dollar right now. And when was the last time like I travel, if you travel abroad once or twice a year, I mean, crap, if you were going to England right now, that would really hit you in the face to be a buck 40. So you got to realize that the dollar is under pressure. And, you know, economists and, and folks who study oil prices and everything, there's a lot of when I when I started coming up in this, and you've probably studied it as well, you know, what is how much weight does the role of the dollar um, actually play on on prices? But the and the reality is oil prices are priced in dollars. So when dollar when the dollar moves significantly upside or downside, it does impact oil prices and it's in the reverse. So when the dollar is weak, and that is particularly because we have a Fed being extremely dovish and continuing to be dovish, um, we do have a weaker dollar. We're seeing that in across the uh, exchange rates. That's to some extent is in helping to prop up oil prices. I'm just saying it's artificially propping them up. There's a oil prices aren't aren't only um, the dollar isn't the only thing behind oil price. Obviously, fundamentals are, but it is certainly a role, um, and it's something that folks have to consider. Do you agree with that? 
Oh yeah. In, in terms of the dollar. Yeah. I mean, of course. So why don't we start talking about inflation then? I mean, the big question in the market right now is whether or not this inflation that we're clearly seeing is transitory. Uh, I think we can clearly agree the CPI is not the best indicator with its hedonic adaptions and whatnot of, of true inflation. Um, we've seen higher prices across the board, copper, lumber. There are some commodities that aren't necessarily rising. We've seen lots of asset price inflation, clearly with crypto and, and equities. Um, where do you think we're going from here? Is it transitory? And will the Fed be forced to act in the next quarter or so? So I think it's um, it, it could be transitory. The problem is we've had several months of it. And so I think there's a number of things. And in this, so Robert Kaplan had a really good interview on Bloomberg that you can actually pull up on the Dallas Fed website. So I recommend everyone checking it out because he, he points this out. Also, if you listen to Bloomberg and CNBC and you just and, and commentary, everyone's a little bit afraid to you know, everybody's a little bit afraid to comment and in earnings calls as well to comment about um, the state of the fiscal environment and the unemployment benefits, um, because that does play a role in here. So Robert Kaplan gets into a number of different things, but this inflation piece and the job side and the stickiness and, and high unemployment, but also not, you know, jobs and everything, it all actually comes together and it is all related to the intricacies that happened within the pandemic. So I think that, you know, and this this gets back into the oil market in a lot of ways, but really the economy is extremely important because it is what underpins the oil market. So inflation, we are running, um, we absolutely have inflation. I don't think there's a question, there's, there's a doubt, especially you hear it the best. And I, I recommend if you're staying up late, seriously, just flip on Bloomberg because when the Asian market opens and the Middle East market opens, that's all they're talking about right now is inflation. And it, particularly because the Asia market is so tech heavy, um, they feel it more. So the Asia market's getting crushed in the last few days. We've seen it was two of the worst days since March for the S&P 500. I mean, tech stocks, what, what's, her, what's her name? Uh, uh, the arc. Kathy Wood. Kathy Wood is getting decimated. She's defending it. She thinks she's can double down right now. I think she's doesn't have a, a very diversified portfolio. It cannot all be tech all the time. Um, it just doesn't work. But this is really showing you and tech. The reason to, why tech is exposed is obviously it's the cost of concerns about inflation mean that you will have rising interest rates in the future. And the real concerns are that the Fed will have to slap on the brakes too hard. And so the fears are coming from that is that Powell came out in January and said that this inflation will be transitory. And, uh, you know, I think it was uh, Janet Yellen, our Treasury Secretary, had said she kind of said something and she walked it back like we can handle this if we do have inflation. They can't handle it. But the problem is, is that you only have so many tools in your toolbox and um, you can raise interest rates. And we're at a much we're at such a different place than we were in the previous financial crisis that we dealt with in 2008 and even in the Great Depression. So a lot of folks are viewing this like you, you still have to throw money at the economy. We don't actually anymore have to throw any more money at the economy, maybe some targeted approaches and everything. But we've thrown quite a bit of money at it. And now we have this real inflation. But part of this inflation is not just it isn't just the Fed throwing money and, and the fiscal side and stimulus. It is that you had all these bottlenecks during the pandemic and then you had all this demand and you have this like stickiness. And so the job side is a piece of that as well Is like people can't, you know, people are demanding certain things. We're getting we have bottlenecks in Asia still. Semiconductors are an example of that. But this actually extends. I'm trying to get a. a a topper for the back of my pickup truck. Um, and I, they're 15 to, to, I mean, they're 12 to 15 weeks out for the one that I actually want. And the guy explained it to me really clearly that 
you know, when the pandemic started, everyone assumed that demand would crater. And so they they canceled everything. And then that's not what happened during the pandemic. People actually demanded everything outdoorsy, you know, four wheelers, what you call them ATVs here and um, and pickup trucks and Jeeps and campers and hot tubs. They all went bananas. And so the demand was so high and then the market has had sort of to respond. And so everything sort of backlogged and then add into that that um, th so add into that, like anything you have to put together in the U.S. and how they may be split off jobs. Now they're hiring back and now they can't get those people back. And this is a really serious thing because these unemployment benefits and this is what people are all nervous to talk about. And they all end up talking about it. Jim Cramer was on the market this morning. He's like, I don't know, I do have to say, you know, it is the unemployment benefits like it's real. It's t so effectively your unemployment benefits now, which I guess last through September. Um, and if they. Oh, if they extend these through September, we're going to have some major problems in this economy, but it's $22 an hour. So you are, um, you can stay, you can not work and make $22 an hour, essentially with the unemployment benefits. Now that doesn't mean that that's a, people shouldn't be making more than that or women, you know, there's a lot of women staying at home because their kids are not full time going to school. So it makes sense for them to do that. And they're collecting unemployment. I don't, I'm not dismissing that at all. And, and, you know, more part, if you can accept it, that's great. But what's happening is a lot of people are actually um, are choosing not to go back to work. So the um, well, Liberty Oil Field Services, which we'll talk about in the next podcast, they mentioned this in their earnings call that they can't get employees like every single earnings call, every person, every company across the board is talking about how they cannot get employees back. And it's really sticky. We have two million jobs not filled in the U.S. right now. And we have housing prices up 20 percent since the first part of the year. This is a problem like and Robert Kaplan goes through this. Yeah. So two million people are looking for or two million jobs are posted we not able to fill them. And then we have these these housing prices going up. And so Robert Kaplan, you know, in this interview, and he's apparently been pr relatively vocal and they have to be careful because they can't go completely against what their peers within the Fed are saying. But obviously he made it really clear in the interview that they will monitor the stuff and they'll be talking about it and they'll be deciding on these factors. But that certainly the run up in housing prices. Um, so there were two big points he pointed out, and that was that women actually staying home. So because schools are not fully reopened so that, you know, women are going to choose to actually stay home to take care of the kids. And the burden does predominantly fall on women and that um, high schoolers dropping out. So one rise rising factor in employment, not unemployment, was high, was 16 to 19 year olds gaining work. And that was due to a they're dropping out of high school and they're getting jobs. So um, that's not a positive thing that will have long term repercussions on on the US economy. No, that is not good. Um, so that was that was a very interesting note. And then the housing comment he made was that he they are definitely seeing at least the Dallas Fed, they're definitely doing their research and seeing that housing has, um, we're seeing investors come into markets and buy up housing sight unseen um, and per, you know push out um, actual people who are normal, regular, everyday people who are trying to buy housing. And so those, the reason you're seeing that obviously is because um, the, they have money and we have very low interest rates. And so this is fueling that. And he just comments that essentially that they have the tools to address this, but if they don't eventually start, if you don't address it in time, um, it's a little more painful. So I think with all this, we can absolutely expect that we are going to see um, that we are going to see at least we're going to have to see them start talking about tapering at some point because the asset purchases, they're still doing asset purchases. Um, so that tapering is going to have to start at some point. And and, please, and the problem interject. here, well, I don't know if you, you need a long 
Look, so I had the the pleasure of sitting down with my oldest son, who is 11, and watching back to back "Too Big to Fail" and "The Big Short." That's awesome. Which was a lot of fun, and he he th- he says "The Big Short's his favorite movie," which I think is kind of cool. That's really cool. It's just a, saying, I don't know if he's so just saying that to make me happy. No, not, that's a great movie too. He loves it. Um, but you know, clearly there were quite a few things that led to the great financial crisis. But one of those was too dovish monetary policy after the tech bubble burst um, in the early 2000s, which led to excess liquidity in the system and rapid speculation. They can argue part of it was also deregulation. And there's a, an alternative theory about the mark-to-market accounting, um, the turnaround of which allowed the, the recovery to take place. But my view is the Fed is a pro-cyclical crash generator that easy money is going to be very hard to get away from. It's basically can kicking. Um, On top of that, we had fiscal intervention from Congress that eclipsed the huge amount of capital injected from the great financial crisis, about which there was a lot more teeth gnashing than there was this time around. So we've been acculturated to these massive financial injections into the market. Um, on top of ultra easy accommodative monetary policy, not just in the U.S. but abroad, I, I can't see how the Fed can land this easily. I'd be very surprised if that's the case. And I think that the rallies in copper and lumber and to an extent, well, though it's underperformed the rallies in those other commodities, it, we're just seeing the beginning here. I. I agree with that in terms of we're just seeing the beginning. There are there are some, you know, as an economist and someone who studies, I'm always questioning myself of whether, you know, if I can take the, the other side to it. Um, so the one thing I would point out is that copper, the this green revolution, you know, boom, craziness, excitement, money getting thrown at its facts, everything. Copper is definitely at the center of that. And so that's why you hear on if you're if you're listening to folks that are saying copper is the new oil. It's not the new oil. It's not quite the same thing, but it's a definitely a commodity that's used in the green space and also just used in everything. So if we're doing infrastructure plans, if we're doing anything, copper's a component. The reason I think oil is interesting and I am going to I want to comment on this, this Fed stuff a little more because there were some some really great interviews actually. On, on CNBC um, yesterday or today. And oil, though, isn't doesn't fold into this. And that's why I think people are got to be a little bit careful is oil does not fit into the inflation thing perfectly. It, it works with the dollar. And that's why I say, you know, we're seeing some support with it. But in theory, if we're seeing this crazy run up and, you know, we're seeing what are what are copper prices? Twelve thousand. I mean, they're pushing these every night. I turn this on and they're saying, oh, we were at 9,000 just a couple weeks ago. I mean, what we're seeing for lumber prices. It is kind of interesting that we haven't seen the crazy bananas of oil. And that's because oil does eventually rest on fundamentals. So there we have a large, transparent, relatively transparent oil market. And I think it's important to realize that the supply and demand fundamentals and the fact that OPEC does have a lot of spare capacity and that we, we have we mentioned that in every podcast, but it's super, super important to think about is that just those several million barrels a day sitting offline and the uh, ability for, you know, especially if, if we loosen these Iran sanctions, if Iran, if we add these barrels back online, it is definitely going to impact the oil market. Um, and not that it's going to crash prices, but that um, it, we just may not have that continued run up. Um, so that's just something to think about. Copper, you, I don't think you, you can't put oil quite in the same bucket as you maybe used to could in terms of the, uh, the overall commodities. But in terms of 
So the Fed, uh, there's an opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal that is called The Fed is Playing with Fire. And the guy that did it was also interviewed on CNBC. Um, and he had them pull up a couple of charts. And one was that he was basically just walking through the numbers and explaining how much the Fed has spent. So essentially, the reason why we have spent, we spent so much during this economic crisis, which was a self-induced, it was a, you choosing to shut down the economy versus what we did in 2008 and the financial crisis, which was not chosen and we didn't force anything shut down. That was, you know, the world is gonna end. And um, we didn't learn our lessons quite enough from the Great Depression and the 2008 financial crisis because we didn't spend enough. And so we spent, we spent a lot of money, but it wasn't quite targeted. And it, we didn't, it took us a long time to heal to get to really that full um, employment picture. It took us years, it took us through the Obama administration and the Trump administration. Then we finally got back on track and obviously then, um, and things were looking great. And then we, we have COVID. But the reason it's different is that, so the learnings from that were throw everything in the kitchen sink at it. So everybody went crazy. This guy was great in that he explained, you know, he was criticizing the Fed and his name is, I'm gonna botch this completely. It's, it's uh, Drunken Miller. Oh, I guess that's so it's it's the article is Christina Broda um, and Stanley Drunkenmiller. And so Drunkenmiller is interviewed on CNBC and he's explaining that the Fed has spent more money. So issued more money basically in there. Um, they, so they haven't tapered yet. So they're still doing quantitative easing and they're still doing as, asset purchases. And you would have thought by now, given that we have the vaccine and that we have on, you know, employment coming back and that we do have real signs of inflation um, and that we have opening and everything and job openings, that this would be the time to taper. So Canada, I believe, is already tapering. They think that the Bank of England is probably gonna begin tapering. The US has not signaled that they're tapering yet. And so, and the Fed has said, you know, our Jerome Powell, our Chairman of Federal Reserve has basically said publicly multiple times that they're gonna continue the asset purchasing. They are gonna monitor this, you know, transitory inflation. He believes it's, it's more short-term in nature. Um, they have the tools in their toolbox. If it's it's real, but that they want the economy to run a little hot. Essentially, they want um, inflation above 2%, sustained above 2%, and they're targeting full employment. It's hard and tricky to, to have that full employment if you have a if you have unemployment benefits that are preventing everyone from incentivizing them to go back to work. So and all these earnings calls and all these chief economists to every bank, they're basically citing the same thing is that they're hearing that. But what he notes in his article and what he pulls up, he has them pull up on CNBC when he's getting interviewed by I think it's Joe Kernan. He asks for the um, so he explains that the Fed has spent more money post the vaccine recovery, since since vaccines have been issued in, and going up, that the Fed has spent more money than we did in, than they did in all of the 2008 financial crisis. So that's a, you know, you're, you're talking about billions being put into the economy and that that's what's impacting, you know, I think what Kaplan is saying is that these, the asset purchases and the ability for, you know, investors to go up and buy these homes and that's creating, um, that, that's real inflation, that's housing inflation and that is impacting on the lumber side because now it's, you know, folks don't know if they should buy a house, if they should build a house and all of it's too damn expensive and everything's going crazy. So he also puts up the, uh, the retail sales figure. And so if you look at re historical retail sales and you look at where we were at, in 2008 and how it declined and it took a long time to recover in 2008 for retail sales to get to full recovery. And then we saw obviously a big drop in retail sales with the with the pandemic and then a massive recovery. And we have the recovery retail sales has been skyrocketing. So that's kind of like every single pinpoint and every single signal the Fed has in front of them saying, 
you are, you're running it hot. We're already in hot. And I think the problem is they probably didn't think we were getting here as quick. Um, and we're here. And so now, um, they, if you, they slam on the brakes, the risk is that if they, you know, if they let this go and then they hit the brakes, then everyone's going to feel it. And I think some other comments I heard on CNBC was that I loved it because it sounded like a price. It was the cure to high prices or high prices. Uh, so essentially if you want to cool this off, you know, you let it run hot and it's going to cool itself off because eventually the market, if the market starts slipping, you know, people are going to get, if we see corrections in the market, which we probably will eventually see, um, because people are believing the Fed's going to have to raise interest rates no matter what. The, the belief is that they will begin tapering soon and that they will have to signal they're raising rates before year end. And yet every time we hear them talk, they're like, nope, we're not going to raise rates. So something's got to give, in my opinion. Well, it, it's, it's very clear to me that a top-down command and control approach to the economy does not work whether that's in China or the United States, and to the extent that they think that they are the master of the, of the universe and can plan this perfectly, you know, in, inflation is going to be with us. I, I think it's a it's a major concern. We also wrote a, a, a piece and did a, a webinar on these topics at uh, my current employer, BP Capital, which I commend to your attention at bpcphones.com. And with that, let's wrap up episode 15, Tricia. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually completely agree. So um, I think that we just to bring it to bring it back to oil prices. Uh, hold on, Ethan. Um, I think that the impacts of the kind if, if we don't cool off or we don't monitor and watch this, um, it does have an impact on demand for for oil. So if you end up having to put a hard break on things and then the economy slows down, that does impact oil demand. So it's something for people to watch very seriously. I think we feel like we're, you know, everything's great and we're running and it's we're all coasting. So um, with that, I think we've talked about inflation and oil prices plenty. Um, awesome. So I'm your host, Trisha Curtis, the CEO of Petronards. This is my co-host, Ethan Bellamy um, with BP Capital. Thank you so much, guys.